0: Let's give another hand to our moms this morning. We thank you all so much for all that you've done and all that you do. You know, the Bible says that uh, when God created humanity, when God created man, He made humanity both man and woman in his image. Uh, And something that doesn't get talked about enough and that we just kind of breeze past it and, and I don't think we really give thought to it like we should, that we don't get the complete picture without observing the unique traits that he gave to both men and women. Because the image is not complete with just looking at men or just looking at women, but it's complete by looking at both. And I believe that sometimes we forget that uh, Genesis tells us that he made both man and woman in his image. But of course, he made both men and women different with different gifts and different traits that both together give us a complete and full picture. And it's truly that the grace that he has equipped and wired every woman with, that gives us a window into his heart that cannot be found and cannot be observed anywhere else. And and this is especially on display through the nurturing and the selfless love of a mother for her child. And it's easy to take for granted that love because it's as prevalent and it's as persistent as the air that we breathe. But it's right in it that we pause today and we spend time appreciating our moms and understanding that a mother's love is indeed a reflection of God's Love, and, and if you wanna know what God's love is like, thinking about the love that your mom or that mother figure in your life showed you is a good place to start. Speaking of good places to start, God's word is full of reminders and reflections of God's love. And the Bible is the greatest love story ever told and the greatest love story you can ever read. It's about how God so loved a rebellious and fickle race, how God so loved a world full of people who call it home, how committed he was to saving sinners like us. In every story, on every page, we find God's love emphasized and underscored. And and even in the stories that it may not seem like God's love is being communicated or reflected, uh, even where it's not as apparent or as clear as others, it's there because it's on every page, it's in every story. Story. And, and, and today we're starting a brand new study called Breakthrough which will take us through the next three weeks. At the heart of this series, at the heart of this study is this very idea that God is always trying to break through to our hearts with his love. Sometimes to get through to us, he has to implement different means. He has to utilize means and leverage means that may not come across as love at first. Sometimes it may feel as if he is breaking a promise. Sometimes it may feel as if he is bringing us into circumstances that don't feel uh, like they are loving circumstances. They may feel like they're going to break us. But God's goal is always, you can quote me on this, and, and anybody that speaks from God's word has to communicate this clearly. God, his goal is always, it's always to cause us to turn towards him, to begin to see him for who he is, a loving father, that we might would trust in him. And and in this series, as many as with many stories and selections in the Bible, we're going to see God's parental love on display. And, and specifically, we're going to see God working and making decisions for his children for his people, for his children in ways that don't always seem to be uh, for their good or don't always seem to be uh, in terms of the way they interpret it and the way they understand it. They don't always understand what God is doing. And at times they're very confused. At times they're very bewildered. At times they are questioning whether God is even involved in what's going on or not. But we're going to see how God is literally breaking through the barriers that we put up, that the world puts up, the culture puts up. And maybe just like when you were little, just like when we were little and our parents, especially our moms, uh, sometimes that our parents made decisions for us and, and, and worked with us or, or taught us and showed us uh, through life uh, in, in ways that we didn't always see what they were doing um, as loving. We didn't always interpret it as, as them, you know, doing what was best for us. But As we got older, we realized that they were so committed to loving us that they wouldn't compromise what it would take to raise us and best position us for the future. And that we're going to see that in God and how God displayed his love. And I think we've all experienced that in our own homes, uh, through whatever we may have been through. And sometimes this might be referred to as tough love, but I think that undercuts the intent of the parent. There's no reason to put an asterisk on it. It's just love. And maybe it's love in its purest form. So often we don't realize the sincerity and the passion of true love, especially when we are the child bent on doing something against our goodwill, against our best interest but we can't understand that it's not for our good and it's not for our best in the middle of trying to do it again it's not tough love it's true love that of course parents know very well, and as we, as kids grow older, we realize it very well, that that's what a parent pours out for their child, that our moms poured out for us and that God himself has poured out for us. Now, sometimes when that love is being expressed, it may come across as criticism and nobody likes to be criticized. We kind of, you know, retreat from it and we kind of wince at it. It comes across as discipline, but what it really is, it's constructive and nurturing. We've all got memories from childhood where we felt like we were being punished, but what was really happening, we were being disciplined and we were being nurtured and we were being loved by someone that knew more than we knew and someone that cared so deeply for us. Now, the Bible is full of obvious examples. And expressions of God's love. There are some portions that reflect His love in a critical or disciplinary way. And maybe the most famous example, or the best example of this parental love, this disciplinary kind of love, is the book of Judges. If you've read it before, you're probably familiar with this uh, concept. If not, this will be a very a, a new, but also very important study for you to follow through. As a child of God, um, you may not think that um, that uh, when you read Judges, you may not think or point to Judges as the most notable reflection of God's love. But upon deeper and thorough study, I think you'll agree it is a perfect example of God's love. Now, the book of Judges is also reflective in a different way Uh, in terms of the setting and time period that it spotlights. It's easy to read Judges and see how the people of the world, especially the people of Israel, uh, the way they were behaving, it's easy to see our own world in the world that was. It's easy to read Judges and think, wow, um, that is similar to the way things are today. And we'll talk specifically about what is similar and what is resembling to our world. Uh, But we read about a world where things were not as they were they should be and specifically, and more importantly, they were not as they could be. You you see, the book of Judges is often known for and, and, and remembered for the chaos and the disarray the nation of Israel was in, but they should not have ever been there and they did not have to be in that place. You see, Judges is the story of Israel just a few generations removed from the days of Moses and the days of the Exodus, where the people of Israel were so close to God, where God literally fed them from heaven daily. He brought water out of rock supernaturally. He was with them in clouds and, and fire. He was present in their midst, and they were as close to him as they could ever be. He performed signs and wonders in the midst of their camps. And uh, again, the nation of Israel was primed and positioned to step into the promised land. Uh, and be the best nation they could ever be, as close to God and as faithful to God and as prepared for whatever the world might bring their way. And after that, uh, Joshua came into Moses' place and he led them into the promised land. And they were finally able to begin realizing what they had dreamed about. Uh, and, and they had everything in place. They had all the resources. They had all the perfectly positioned uh, tools in place. They were ready to be the nation under God, prospering under his will, that they had always been destined to be. But the story of Judges and the generation in the book of Judges is a story of one fumbled ball after another. It's the story of a missed opportunity after missed opportunity. If there was ever a nation or a generation that was set up for success, it was this generation. But if there was ever a generation that blew it big time... It was this one they had they had just received the complete Word of God from Genesis to Deuteronomy in, in, in that time. Joshua had just led them to the promised land, they had all the institutions in place they had the tabernacle built, they had everything they needed. they had the people of God fresh off the miracles that God had worked. Everything was perfectly in place for them to be faithful and to be successful and to be prosperous. but if you've ever read the Book of Judges, you know that's exactly the opposite of what happened now to get us acclimated with this time period i want us to get introduced to this story by looking at judges chapter 2 we'll read the first 15 verses we'll be introduced to uh the conflict we'll see the farewell the departure of a very key figure and then how the people respond to that Judges chapter two, verse number one. Then the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So we get this reminder of what God has done and what God has promised. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. You shall not obey, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? which will be kind of a a repeated question that we'll read about in Judges or read in Judges. Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. And we'll explain that in just a minute. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochem and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. When all the generation that had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose, and this is the big kind of tone setter, this is the big thesis for the book. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And it wasn't because they hadn't been told the stories. It's because they began to focus on other things and begin to replace those stories with other things things. Verse 11 continues to, to explain what this generation stepped into. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed after other gods from were among the gods of the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, or these other gods of the Canaanites. Now, herein we find the first sign of God's true love, and and really we see the mercy of God on display. And you may not initially detect this as mercy, but I think we'll begin to unpack it and, and make it pretty clear. God allowed them to walk away from him. Look at verse 14. It says, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. Literally, he handed them over not only to the other gods, those gods weren't real, but he handed them over to the other nations that you know worship those gods who begin to take influence over Israel when they begin to worship the same gods that when Israel turned away from God and went toward these other false idols that the nations of those false idols begin to uh, push and, and, and push their pressure and begin to influence and eventually they begin to subdue and enslave the nation of Israel. But the specific thing there is that God handed them over. Now you may not think that that seems like a sign of God's love but i want to explain this that what we see on display here is god's sovereign mercy. Now sovereign means he's in control, that he does not, uh, that nothing happens that is not sovereignly oversaw or allowed by God. So that's why it's important that even though they walked away from God, verse 13 says they forsook the Lord, but verse 14 says he delivered them over. So even though they made the choice, sovereignly God handed them over. But this was an act of mercy an act of mercy. You see, God in his mercy does not push his rule and does not force his rule on anyone. God does not force or does not Uh, obligate us and God does not somehow intervene and, and say, hey, I'm not allowing you to worship anyone else. I'm not allowing you to listen to anyone else. God gives us a choice. And we often refer to that as our free will. But that is ultimately an overflow of God's mercy because God is so merciful, he will not force himself on you. He will not force his rule over your life. And therein, we also see a picture of our own sinfulness, because our sinfulness will cause us to take that option in a minute. We will quickly see ourselves out, because we think that we don't need God's rule. We think that we don't need someone to rule and guide us and and direct us. We think we are free, independent, autonomous creatures. But here's what this is all about. This is why God allows this to happen so that we might learn that we are not autonomous, we are not independent, we are unable to self-rule. But we think we are. We think we are autonomous, we think we can make our own rules and follow our own rules and be free independent people, but we are unable to actually do that. Here's why. This is something that none of us like to admit, but we all have to learn sometimes the hard way. We are all creatures. None of us are here apart from a creator. We may think and feel as if we are autonomous. We may feel like we are independent, but we are not. We need leadership. We yearn for leadership and guidance. And if we do not allow God to be our king, here's the big important thing to remember. If we don't allow God to be our king, if we don't worship God as our Lord and King, we will find something. We will find someone. We will drift to somebody's altar that if we are not worshiping God and if we are not putting him as our king, him as our Lord, him as our creator, we will find somebody to put in his place. It's just our nature. We need something or someone to lead us, even if we pretend like we are making our own decisions. At the end of the day, somebody or something is controlling our lives. And this is really the grand indictment over humanity. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 1. For although they knew God, uh, we know deep down that we were made by God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. As in, we convinced ourselves we could walk away from God. We didn't need anybody to rule over us. But in the meantime, what we actually did was replace God with something inferior. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Because we think we don't need the Lord, we end up settling for less, and not only less glorious, but less merciful. And here's, here's something that we, again, we have to understand and we have to realize, and Judges makes it so clear to us that when we end up turning to the gods of this world, to the things of this world to rule us and lead us and to control us, those things won't let us go and come and go as we want to. Those things are not merciful. Those things, those little gods, those lesser gods, the idols of this world, the vices of this world, They will enslave us and dominate us. They are not merciful like God. They won't give us over for anything. They will take and they will take and they will take until there's nothing left of us. And that's what Israel is delivered over so that they would learn in Judges that they turn from God. So God hands them over and it says there in verse 14, he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. So the scripture says that God allowed them to be overtaken by their enemies, overtaken by the gods that they worshiped and the people that, you know, uh, leverage those idols, so that they might learn that if you take God out of the center of your life, something else will get into the center of your life, and that something else will not be as good or kind or merciful to you in no way compared to the one and true and only God who made you, who only should be worshiped by you. That when we allow that void to be filled with something else, it'll be something inferior in every way. Something that will enslave us and dominate us and make our lives worse. You see, God in all of this was determined to win them back. He was determined to get them to realize the error that they had made, the decisions that they had made. And again, this is a display of his love. Proverbs 3 says that for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. Just as a father disciplines the child in whom he delights. But he wasn't going to let them suffer and wallow, even though he allowed them to be taken over, even though he allowed them to be in bondage, he allowed them to realize what their decisions were going to cost them or cause for them. God ultimately was at work to save them. And that's what verse 16 tells us about. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those plundered, those who plundered them. So he allowed them to leave. He gave them over. They became slaves or in bondage. And then God raised up a judge or a deliverer to bring them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot after other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And here's the heart of God on display. For the Lord was moved by pity, by their groanings because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. So you don't you see this was always an overflow of God's love and God's mercy. And that's why this became known as the judge's generation. God in his love and kindness, he would send deliverers to help dig the nation out of the mess that they often dug themselves into At the same time, God's love is on display, even in their stumbling and their struggling because he would not allow them to feel the consequences of turning away from him for long in hopes that they might never turn away again. Now, even though they often go right back into more trouble as they are delivered, verse 19 says, it came to pass when the judge was dead, they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers did. So they go through this cycle in the book of Judges, as in they walk away, God lets them be taken into slavery, the judge rises up, delivers them, and then they are thankful, but then they revert back, and then you rinse and repeat that same cycle again and again. So in in a lot of ways, this book is a picture of God the Father and Israel the child that continues to get itself into trouble, right? Judges features a very young nation of Israel and God at his most parental. If you read the whole book, uh, there are two things that are spotlighted again and again. And and this is kind of going to lead us in our uh, focus for the rest of our time today in the next couple of weeks in the book of Judges, as there is a breakdown in faith, there's also a breakdown in family. So what we find in Judges, if we get really to the heart of the matter, if you begin to investigate what kept causing them to drift away, what kept causing the people to turn away from God, what, what actually is the emphasis of it all, the catalyst of it all, the cause of it all is that the families were walking away from where God had them to be and wanted them to be. And as the families begin to erode, the nation begin to erode. As they, their families begin to fade away, the faith of the, of the nation begin to fall away. Now, as the people walk away from God, where what suffers the most and what ends up causing the most turmoil for the nation uh, is because of how the family suffers, how those implications affect so many other areas and avenues of the world. Now, what puts this into an entirely different perspective is how Joshua uh, spoke to the nation before he stepped down as leader. And back in Joshua 24, Joshua's farewell address kind of set all this up and, and they should have saw this coming, but again, they didn't. Joshua said, therefore fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me in my house, so Joshua kind of signals that the core of the, the the, the only hope for the nation was for each individual house, for each individual family to make this decision. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. He said, I can't make decisions for you all, I can't make everybody make decisions that are right and responsible, but I can make a decision for me and for my family. Now, Joshua may have led his family in the right way. Most of the nation apparently did not. And this is what the text tells us What, the, what text tells us was the ultimate nadir of the whole generation that followed. Over in chapter three, verses five and six, we see a specific mention of how the family and the values of the family begin to erode away. Verse five of chapter three says, the children of Israel dwelled among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, so all the different foreign nations that worshiped different gods. And it wasn't that the nations themselves were not wrong, evil. It was their gods that they worshiped and led them astray was what was causing them to be corrupt. They took their daughters to be their wives. They gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. So we see this breakdown in what the families valued in the in the, in the, uh, the, the virtues that the families held near and dear as the families begin to erode or as the faith begin to erode, the families begin to suffer and there begin to be a a lack of uh, unification around the faith of the nation and there begin to be a blending and and emerging with the world. So as the family unit begin to break down on top of the shift in faith, the nation was on a full slide or in a full slide in the wrong direction. Uh, The story of Judges though, it's not completely a dumpster fire though. Uh, is simply an indictment against Israel. It's truly a story of mercy and love, a story of God's pursuit of a wayward nation. Chapter after chapter, you can read about God's relentless work to restore Israel. There are some colorful and dramatic accounts of God raising up judges to act as superheroes who come in in and save the day. Uh, And maybe God's most celebrated uh, judge or his most celebrated attempt to save the nation is also the most complicated attempt. And that's going to take us to the end of the book of Judges. And it's this story that we're going to get into that encapsulates the greater issue of this era as the focus is as much on the personal life of the judge as it is on his heroics, which allows for the struggle of this time period to be especially felt as we witness the judge fighting the same demons the rest of his country were dealing with. But the unique thing about this story is that his story doesn't really begin with him. It begins with his parents, and this all leans into the tension of the error. The strength of the family unit just wasn't there. And it's highlighted by the particular uneasiness and confusion that we're gonna see on display between this man and woman that God comes to to inform them about the child they're going to have. And again, when we read the story, uh, we're gonna think these people seem, don't, we're not gonna think that they seem uneasy and confused. We're gonna think they seem like normal people because that's the thing that connects our generation with the judge's generation. Our default posture and feeling towards God in a lot of ways is uneasy and is confused. Because as much as we wish that we were, as much as we would love to say we are spiritual people, super in tune with God, super uh, focused on our faith, all of us are a little rough around the edges if we are being honest that regardless of how much Christian music you listen to, how much church you attend, if we were to encounter something like these people encounter, we would be as out of sorts and out of our leagues as they were. And that's why I think this story is the perfect story for us to step into. And it's especially fortuitous that it's on a day like this, that our minds are on the importance of family because in the beginning, and this all traces back to where the breakdown of the whole world came from. In the beginning, as we discussed, God made men and women in his image. We were made to bear his image individually and together." And what happened after that doesn't get talked about enough. God's next act was to start the first faith community. And it was around that first faith community that he was set to build the rest of the world. From that first faith community, God would design the rest of the world, civilization and society. He desired and intended for for this community to be the hub the rest of the world rotated around, to, to be steadied by. God's second act of creation after he made the world, after he made man and woman was to establish this original faith community. And maybe you've never thought about it in these terms before, but the first, the first faith community wasn't a nation and it wasn't the church, it was the family. And that's what makes Satan's initial attempt to usurp and destroy what God had created all the more sinister. Yes, he went after the only two people alive, but his tactics in Eden were indicative of his strategy going forward. His goal was to undermine the joint faith of a husband and wife and disrupt their communication and cause them, this is so important, to cause them and to cause us to see one another as a stumbling block rather than the co-laborers God designed us to be. This has been Satan's strategy since the beginning. And regardless of your marital status, regardless of where you are in life, this is his strategy every single day against you as you try to serve God. He causes us to see each other as stumbling blocks rather than the co-laborers he designed us to be. The seed he planted in Eden in Genesis 3 is the seed that sprouted in Genesis 4 that caused trouble with their children. And it's what causes the disruption we see throughout the Bible, and in our world to this day. All the chaos always stemmed from broken homes, broken relationships, and the enemy's goal again and again and again was and has been to shake our confidence in God in our mutual support of, in our submission to one another. And if you just look at the world, if you just observe the world, I think, I would say he's done a pretty good job at this. And you may not always be able to tell how confident people are in God or not, but you can see that there is something in all of us that resists this idea of supporting each other and submitting to each other. And it's all the more present in our homes, in our families, but it's all over the place. When this happens continually, the result is severed relationships, broken relationships between couples, families, and all down the line. The scene we arrive at in Judges is pretty much the same scene we're accustomed to in our day and age. And here's what we don't realize. And here's why this is important for you, no matter where you are in life, no matter what you're going through, no matter what your status is. The reason why this is important for you right now here today is our relationship with God. And our response to God will only be as strong and steady as our commitment to and support for one another. And you may say, I don't know, it's just me and Jesus. I don't have to know, about nobody else matters. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Your relationship with God and your response to God will only be as strong and steady as your commitment to and support for one another. And this is why when we get to the New Testament, Jesus does not allow for us to separate the idea that you can love God without loving people. He says that the two are joined together. You can't have one side of the coin without the other. If you love God, you must love your neighbor. You must love one another because you can't do one without the other. And I think, and if we think we can ignore our relationships and be super dandy with God, we're deceiving ourselves and we're misrepresenting our faith to the world. And this is so embedded in the New Testament church. There are verses and passages in the New Testament that our modern church doesn't get within 10 feet of because we don't know what to do with them. And honestly, we don't know if we want anything to do with them. And the reason why nothing is popping off in our head right now about, hey, I don't know about those verses is because we have trained ourselves to ignore the conviction that they give us. For example, in one of Peter's letters, he talks about the importance of our closest relationships, husband, wife, parent, child, church member to church member. If if your closest thing to family is your church member, then I think this is as relevant as if he's talking to husband and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters, you know, so forth. He says that the importance of our closest relationships, he emphasizes how vital it is that every one of us walks in a path with God that he's drawn for us, fulfilling the calling and exercising the gifts he's given us with, in regards to those he's put around us and those that we have been placed beside and alongside of, using them for the good of those in our lives. So here's what Peter says about those vital relationships, about how you relate to that person, your husband, your wife, your parent, your mom, your dad, your children, your brother, your sister, your church family. Here's what Peter says. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter says that you can't ignore this because they are heirs with you of this life. Husbands, wives, parents, children, church member to church member, they are heirs with you. You are, we are not alone in this life. You may feel alone, you may feel like things are, you know, you're on your own, but there is is for you a church family that accepts you and welcomes you. But if you're in a family where things are tense, husband, wife, mom, dad, brother, sister, and you're wondering, hey, can I just kind of shake this loose and do my own thing? Can I just be me and God, and nobody else? Does it really matter what everything else is going on or whoever, what everybody else has got going on? Peter says, absolutely it does because they are heirs with you. You see that? As in the, in the will, it's not just your name, it's their name. But God, the Father, who has left the will, who has left his estate, has put an asterisk on this whole situation. He says, hey, you're not going to get all I've got for you if you don't understand that they are right there with you. You hear that? Husbands, wives, parents, children, brother, sister, church member to church member, you are heirs with one another. And that last part, we we don't even know what to do with that last part, do we? that your prayers may not be hindered. I mean, is there a world where my prayers or my relationship with God, that's what it's about, right? My relationship with God is hindered because I ignore my relationships with one another. I didn't write the book, thankfully. But what do we do with this church? We can't ignore it. And in the next chapter, Peter says this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. (laughs) I love that he put that in there because we often do it, but we grumble while doing it. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, different, and unique grace. So each of you has received a gift. And he says, it's important how you use those gifts, especially pertaining to those that God has put you around to those that God has put you in relationships with, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You you see what happens when when we separate our faith from every other aspect of our lives? Our faith falls apart and so does every other aspect of our life. That is why we often find ourselves wondering where it all went wrong and especially this is true in our families in so many ways, we are so far from where we should be and could be, we may feel at loss regarding how to start reversing this trend, but I believe I believe that our generation, just like with the judges' generation, I believe that we can indeed turn things around, but, but if we're going to see our world head in the right direction, it's going to be because the church led the way, but the world won't get there unless the church is headed there And the church won't ever begin leading until its families uphold and live out these truths. You see how it all connects together? But it all is reduced down to the lowest common denominator. Not that you're the least important, you're the most important because you have a vital role to play. What this conversation is meant to do more than anything is to cause us to narrow our focus as we wonder what has ever happened to the world. Perhaps the unraveling started in the smallest, most sacred institution within the walls of our homes. Unless we are embodying these crucial, important convictions, then the fingers aren't pointed at the world, but they're pointed at us. Regardless of your marital status, regardless of where you are in life, we all bear the responsibility to graciously and passionately live out our respective lives to their fullest potential. So before we leave, I want to observe how one particular couple in the book of Judges, sent a signal of hope to their generation. They were were far from perfect. They were completely, uh, you know, uh, uh, they did not have any idea of what God was wanting to do in their lives. And they were so afraid and so nervous about the whole idea of it. But they decided, even though they weren't where they should be, and they did not know all that God was going to do, they decided to cling to what God was offering to them. And that was all they could do, but that was all they needed to do. Even though their initial response was uneasiness and confusion, they chose to trust in God because they believed He was sovereign, they believed He was merciful, they believed He was not trying to harm them, they believed God was trying to bring a breakthrough to even them. And I believe He's still trying to do this and desiring to do this for us today. I think their story can leave us with a bit of optimism and most of all, inspiration. So in closing, flip over to Judges 13, and I want you to hear this story between two often forgotten about people, one person that's so forgotten about that she's not even named, unfortunately. But listen to this story in closing. Judges 13, again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, there was a certain man named Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Now this story is written to give us insight to how tough the times were. And there's an underlying sign that the family unit was a far cry from where it should have been and could have been. Manoah's wife is not named in this story. Not because she wasn't important. She's really the star of the story. But the writer excludes her name. And I think that's meant to help us feel the tension of the day. Where men were not the godly leaders, they should have been, women were not empowered and celebrated as they were meant to be. And here in her husband's absence, the angel comes to a, an angel comes to the woman, and it seems as if he offers her something, invites her into something that is almost too big for her to even bear, too much for her to even comprehend. But I want you to listen to what this angel says to her, verse three, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And then she gives her her some instructions. The angel gives some instructions about what she should or shouldn't drink. Don't drink wine, uh, don't eat anything unclean. And then when he's born, he will not have a razor touch his head because he's gonna be a Nazarite to God. He's gonna have a special anointing and he's gonna have special power from God. Verse five, to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Now, a recurring theme in this story is that the two of them are never together. Now, we can interpret, we can assume, we can we can use context clues, but I think what we're supposed to get from this story is that they weren't really where they needed to be as a couple. Are any of us? Are any of us where we need to be as families? And this story is meant for people who feel as if things just aren't where they should be and maybe never will be where they could be. These two were just not where they should be, and it's told in the fact that they're not together when they have these revelations. And the woman comes to her husband and and, and she tells her husband what she just saw. And in verse seven, uh, or in verse number eight, Manoah prays to the Lord and says, oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again. Manoah doesn't really believe everything that his wife just told him. And he's wanting to see it for himself. And, and, and again, a recurring theme in the story is that when the angel comes back, he's not there the second time. So God listens to his voice. And it says in verse nine, the angel came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah was not with her. And again, we're supposed to get the idea that just things were not right between them. And he didn't believe her. He wasn't satisfied with what she told him. She says, well, let's pray for the angel to come back. The angel comes back and yet he is not there again. We're supposed to get the sense that these two just weren't really up to the task. Manoah's all over the place and maybe he was super stressed out. We don't know. But his wife trying to sort through this and carry this the best she can, trying to put this together. Listen to how the story wraps up, verse 10. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, look, the the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife when he came to the man who said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, let, now let your lurch come to pass. We'll, we, what will this boy's rule of life, what will be this boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine nor drink anything, uh, wine or similar drink or anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So the, again, they get these specific instructions. Then Manoah said to the angel, please let us detain you. you will, we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was an angel from the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel, what is your name? What is your name? And when your words come to pass, that we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful or literally it is too wonderful? And what we get from the context here is this was actually God appearing to them in the form of this angelic or this heavenly being. So the angel says to them, the name is too wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, offered it on the rock to the Lord. He did a wondrous thing while the Lord and his wife looked on. And we get this word wonderful. And I think that's a good place for us to stop and think a minute. I think this is a message of inspiration and encouragement. While this was all too overwhelming and way more than they were prepared or equipped for, Manoah and his wife, they chose to believe, and they were willing to trust God together. So what bring what the story is all about is they come together and they believe and they're willing to trust God. And the whole point of the story was that they would come together, because they're always apart but God brings them together. They did not doubt the wonderful nature of God and they dared to give themselves over to wonder and wonder what God might do. They clung to this invitation uh, in, in the God who works to trust in the God who works wonders. In so many ways, I think we've lost our sense of awe and wonder for God. We've allowed this world to drain us and empty us of our, of our passion. And that was Israel during the Judges' generation. God was trying to get them to renew their faith, renew their willingness to believe, to trust in him, and come together rather than drift apart. The prophet Jeremiah says it best when the nation of Israel had drifted away. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. God was trying to get the nation to come back to that place. And I think for many of us as believers before God, as husbands, as wives, as, as parents, as family members, we've got a lot of wounds, we've got a lot of baggage, we've got a lot of burdens, And I think God wants us to come back to this place where we will simply put all that aside and believe together and wonder together that God has indeed invited us and will we participate in what he has invited us to be a part of. We may not always have it figured out. We may not always understand it, but will we allow him to do this wonderful thing in front of us? Will we join hands? Will we lock arms? Will we come together as a unit, as families, as churches, and say, God, we may not have it all figured out and we may not be perfect and we may be confused and uneasy, but we believe that you are still the God of the breakthrough. We need to get back to this place of being full of wonder before God around his altar, church. Determine in our hearts that we're going to help help one another remain full of wonder. Hebrews says to the church in the New Testament, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another. That idea of meeting together is not corporate. It's not sterile. It's about coming together in love and support of each other. We need this in our homes. We need this in our families. We need this in our churches. But if it's ever going to happen in our churches, it's got to start at home. The story ends in verse 20. It happened as the flame went up to the Lord from the altar to, toward heaven. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, Manoah knew that the angel that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. So he was about to qu- completely disbelieve that this was actually an imitation. He, he was about to pull out from believing that this was something that God was inviting him to be a part of. He, he was going to psych himself out of it. But listen to the words of his wife. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted our burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us these things. And and church, can I just say that? If God was against us, we wouldn't even be here. Right here today in a church built for his honor, for his glory. If God was against us, you wouldn't have made it this far. If God was against us, you and your families, you would not have the hope that you have. You would not have the promise that you you have. God would not have shown you what he has shown you. If God was against you, you would not be here this, this morning with this promise right in front of you. Nor would he have shown us these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. Do you see what his wife does there in that moment? She says, I'm not gonna let you Take your faith out of this promise. You see how she wasn't willing to let him walk away, even if she was willing to stay herself? Don't you see how this is so important for us as a church, for us as families to get a hold of? When one considered backpedaling, the other was there refusing to let them fall away, reminding them of God's goodness. This woman took responsibility for her husband, refused to let him stay behind. Together, as imperfect as they were, with so much working against them, they chose to follow God because God had chosen them. And it says in verse 24, the woman bore a son, called his name Samson. The child grew and the Lord blessed them. Now, this isn't a message about how we're only important because of the child that God might give us or something that God might do through us in the future. This is about... God's desire to include us and involve us all in his activity in the world. And and this is an invitation for you to believe again, to be full of wonder together with those that God has put in your life, refusing to allow the world to pull you apart, dedicated dedicating yourself to pursue God who is pursuing you. It's time that we recommit seeking the God who is seeking us, who has done these wonderful things in front of us and has invited us like He has invited us. With those in our church family, with those closest to us, God is still on the move. He is still God of the breakthrough. Will we be a people full of wonder before him, committed to one another. And if we, if we will commit to one another, if we will come before him and wonder, refusing to fall away, refusing to let others fall away, there's still hope for our world. There's still hope for our church. There's still hope for us because at an altar, we can begin to pray and determine together to stay together and seek God together. Because if God meant to harm us, we wouldn't be here with this invitation in front of us. So what will you do in response to what God is inviting you and God requiring of you? You individually, you collectively with your families and if things are not where they should be at home, if things are not with your family like they should be, it can start with you. Choosing to believe, choosing to seek the God who is seeking you, choosing to be that anchor, that rock, that messenger that reminds those around you he's still God of the breakthrough. He's done wonderful things in front of us, and he's invited us yet again to see his wonder work through us. Will you choose to believe? Will you be the one that seeks God's intervention and activity in your life, and your family? Who knows what God might do if we will begin seeking him? He's still the God of the breakthrough.